share the Word of God with you. And I want to tell you that this is a message for everyone, but it is especially a message for leaders. And so I hope all of you who are leading in some way, hope you'll be paying attention. Uh, if you are a young person, if you are between the ages of four and first grade, and you're headed to children's church, it's out that way. And it looks like most of them have already arrived, but if you're still sitting here, you should go. I mean, you could stay, but it's up to your folks. So, well, a few weeks ago, I was out working in the barn, which I really enjoy, and I heard this scuffling noise. I heard this kind of scratching noise, and it was coming from one of the animal pens. And this was strange, because the animals were all outside, and so I decided to head over there and investigate further. It was coming from the goat pen. And inside the goat pen, there's uh, a trash can that we store our corn in for the goats. And this time of year, it's down to about that much corn at the bottom of the can. And somehow, a rat had managed to get in to the can. And he was jumping and jumping and jumping. And, uh, but... He's a rat, so he can only get about halfway up, <laughs> and he was stuck in that trash can. So I got an idea. I thought, this would be a lot more fun if I were to get one of our cats and see what he would do with this rat instead of me just dealing with it myself. So I grabbed the trash can, and I brought it out into the yard, and I went and found my daughter because I knew she'd want to see this too. And I, I grabbed one of the cats. And once everybody was in place, I tipped the can over. Now, the rat predictably just ran for it with everything he had. And, and incidentally, heading straight towards the house. <laughs> and um, the cat took a vague look at the rat and then like trotted about 15 feet and then just stopped and the rat is still going he's he's going full speed ahead and the cat's just sitting there looking at the rat and we have another cat up on the patio and he's looking at the rat too and neither of them are doing a thing they are just they don't care it's a rat so after observing all of this i was kind of irritated you see, the primary purpose of having an outdoor cat is that it catches mice and rats and other vermin. That's what they're there for. That's their job. But neither cat made the slightest attempt to apprehend this rat. They were either unwilling or unable to do what they were supposed to do. They were not fulfilling their purpose. Well, the last time I was up here on August 7th, I demonstrated from Scripture that outside of a relationship with Christ, the human heart invariably inclines towards evil and is incapable of pleasing God or desiring to follow his commands. But I also shared the precious truth that when we come to personal faith in Jesus Christ, 
God forgives all of our sins, rescues us from the dominion of darkness, adopts us into his forever family, and gives us a new heart that is capable of loving him and growing in obedience towards him. And if you've never come to personal faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you that there's no better day than today. God says in his word that if you stop trusting your own attempts to be righteous and instead put your faith in Jesus, he will remove the mountains of sin that are on your account as far as the east is from the west. And at that same moment, he'll give you a new heart that allows you to be in relationship with him. And we could say that your new heart has a setting for righteousness. And that brings us to the issue of purpose. See, when God created the universe, he did it to demonstrate his glory and to live in relationship with the creatures that bear his image. That's you and me. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they damaged the image of God in them, and they damaged their ability to glorify God, but they didn't destroy it. See, in the Old Testament, there are many men and women who had a true relationship with the living God. But it was always in the context of looking forward. They were looking forward to the Redeemer that God was going to send, someone who was going to heal the broken relationship between God and humanity. See, those Old Testament saints, they were certainly able to glorify God, but only because they were living by faith and looking forward to the better covenant that Jesus would bring. That's what the writer of Hebrews teaches at the end of chapter 11. And so when Jesus came, he was very conscious, he was very aware of his mission, which was to bring glory to the Father in everything that he did in exactly the same way that we didn't before. Listen to Jesus in John 17, verses 1 through 4. John 17, I'm starting at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Notice the emphasis on glory here. Jesus glorifies the Father by living in complete dependence on him to fulfill all aspects of the Old Testament law, or as Jesus words it at his baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. The result of that is a completely righteous life, as the writer of Hebrews notes. Writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, in the same way that we are, and yet he was without sin. So Jesus's life completely exemplifies righteousness. And now, living on the other side of the cross, we experience all the blessings Jesus won for us. We are no longer under law, but under grace. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling and empowering us. And so, as we discussed last time, our new hearts are capable of growing in our love for God and in our obedience to him. 
But just like the cats, in my example, we often stand unwilling or seemingly unable to fulfill God's purposes for our lives. And so the question stands before us. How do we develop the righteous character that God wants for us? How do we learn to want for ourselves what God wants for us? How do we become the kind of disciples that radiate God's love and his goodness to all the people around us? That's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this morning. I'd like to argue for a paradigm shift in how we pursue the call to righteousness. You see, any Bible-teaching, life-giving church has always stood for righteousness. And in the past 30 years, the church has had a, a huge focus on objective truth because we've been standing in contrast to a culture where there's greater and greater emphasis on your truth and my truth instead of the truth. Right? And this has been a good thing. Right? We had to say things, and we need to continue to say things that are objectively true. Things about the character and nature of God, things about ourselves as created beings, things about heaven and hell and the future of the human race and the nature of human flourishing. But we may have made a mistake along the way. As James K.A. Smith writes, in the evangelical church, we've made the assumption that human beings are just brains on a stick. Let me say that again. We've made the assumption that human beings are only brains on a stick. That is, if we can get more knowledge, more true and correct information into the mind of the believer, that will cause transformation in our lives. Now, I want to be clear. I have nothing against true and correct information. I've spent the better part of the last 30 years putting true and correct information to the best of my ability into the lives of young people. But what if getting information about something is not exactly how transformation occurs? Let's take an example from food. Imagine that I gave you some statistics this morning. Statistics about how eating healthy, eating lots of fresh fruits and fresh veggies and whole Give her a try. All right. Um, blah, blah, blah. Fresh fruits. Is that where we were? Fresh fruits, fresh veggies. All right. Um, fresh fruits, fresh veggies, and all that stuff. And um, the, those things are going to help you, right? You're going to feel great. You're going to have less illness. You're going to have less diseases. And you're going to live longer. And I wrap it up by telling you that if you don't eat bacon, you're going to live nine years longer than the people who do. Well, your brain took in all of that information. But only a tiny percentage of us are going to make changes on, to our diets based on what we learned. Why? 
because we like the foods that we're eating now. Do I have to? It's more fun to watch. Um, we like the foods that we're eating now, right? We like ice cream. We like cheese curds. We like microphones. Um, and we like cheeseburgers with ketchup and dripping with all the other sauces. And as far as the bacon statistic goes, instead of applauding the non-bacon eaters, we're feeling sorry for them because they're going to have to live nine long baconless years. Do you see what I'm getting at? You got information, but you didn't get transformation. But what if the scenario was different? What if you had grown up in a household where mom and dad understood those things? and where the vast majority of meals were loaded with nutrition and devoid of food-flavored food product. Your tastes would be developed such that a Big Mac would be disgusting, but a filet of fish on a bed of wild rice with a side of asparagus would be a wonderful meal. And in fact, if somebody tried to serve you more than one meal of junk food, you'd probably start to object, not only at the mind level, but also at the gut level. So how does God form Christ-likeness in his children if it's not merely information going into the brain? What causes formation or transformation instead of information? Let's look at some ways. And by the way, for those of you out there who are particular, I like to note that these are not all of the ways. These are only the ways that I have time for this morning. So there's lots and lots of ways that God causes transformation. Number one, transformation takes place when we eat and drink from the Word of God. The number one tool God uses for forming people is His Word. And in fact, God gives us reminders all over his word of just how formative and just how valuable and just how important it is. See, right there in the middle of the book, there's a psalm dedicated to the wonders contained in God's revelation to us. It's Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. And the whole thing is focused on God's laws, God's precepts, God's ways, God's wonders. So let's open up to Psalm 119 for a minute. Grab your Bible. 119. We're going to be starting at verse 97. You can't say that about very many chapters in the Bible, can you? We're going to start at verse 97. 97, it's in the section called Mame, the Hebrew letter Mame. It's like our letter M. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp 
to my feet and a light for my path. And you can see from these verses how fascinated the psalmist is with the word of God. He holds it in the highest regard. He proclaims that it's sweeter than honey to his mouth. And remember, he says this in a time and place when they didn't have constant access to sugar the way we do. I wonder, do we view the Word of God that way? Do our hearts agree with Jesus that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Do we resonate with the Apostle Paul when he wrote, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice here that one of the functions of Scripture is training in righteousness, which is exactly what we're talking about this morning. But of course, the Scriptures can't train us if we don't open them. Just having Bibles on your shelf or scattered decoratively about the house may give you a feeling of pseudo-righteousness or may give you a feeling of pseudo-intellectualism, but you have to read them. You have to meditate upon the passages. You have to think about how the Word of God applies if it's going to change you. So the Word of God brings transformation. Number two, formation takes place through our practices of personal and corporate prayer. Formation takes place through our practice of personal and corporate prayer. Let's be honest. Prayer is a mystery. The all-powerful, omniscient, eternal God who already knows your thought before you think it has commanded you to come before him and talk to him in an act called prayer. Beyond just commanding us to do it, he has promised to answer those prayers according to his own wisdom and goodness. And since prayer isn't telling God anything that he didn't already know, it makes me think that one of God's primary purposes in prayer is to cultivate relationship with us so that he can build that righteousness through righteousness from him into our hearts. See, when I pray, at the most basic level, I'm confronted with the truth that God is there everywhere, all the time. And if I do anything in prayer beyond asking for stuff, I will find myself worshiping or thanking him or confessing sin. And all of those things form me as I do them. Those habits will calibrate me, or as Neil phrased it with the youth worship nights, those things will tune my heart. And if I choose to pray the Lord's Prayer, it will focus me on the eternal realities of God's kingdom. Think about just a few of the petitions. Our Father, who art in heaven. Immediately, the focus goes to God and our relationship with him. He's our Father, and he inhabits the realm of the heavenlies. Hallowed be thy name. We're asking God to make his name holy, His name is holy, and we're asking him to make that obvious to everyone that his name is holy. Thy kingdom come. We're asking God to bring his kingdom rule. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The focus is on his will. Give us this day our daily bread. This is the first time in the prayer 
that daily material concerns and needs come up. And I have to think that if we wrote a prayer, we'd probably have the daily material concerns come up in the first petition and the second petition and the third petition. But you can see that Jesus is working on our hearts through this prayer. And the rest of the petitions focus on our relationships to one another and our avoidance of temptation into sin, but you get the idea. And the practice of prayer becomes even more powerful, even more transformative when we come together with other believers and pray with them. Well, I've probably heard hundreds of sermons in my life that talked about the importance of reading the Bible and the importance of being in prayer. And you have too. But I promised you something different in this sermon, so let's go on to number three. Formation takes place through our public and private liturgies. Formation takes place through our public and private liturgies. I suspect that the word liturgies in the last sentence provoked one of two responses. If you didn't grow up in church, you're probably really puzzled right about now. And if you did grow up in church, you probably got some negative associations with the word liturgy, the order of service and pre-printed congregational responses used in more formal churches. But a liturgy is really just something done in a public setting on a regular basis. Some of you are saying right now, well, Berean doesn't have a liturgy, does it? Oh, yes, it does. It goes like this. Welcome and announcements by a pastor or other leader. Spotlight on some guest or ministry that we're involved in. Generally, three worship songs. A prayer by one of the elders. The offering, with or without special music. The sermon, a song of response, and a benediction leading to the dismissal. That's generally our liturgy. We may experience minor variations on that, but generally speaking, that's what we do. It is not my role this morning to evaluate whether our liturgy is good or bad, but only to say that we have one and that what is included in our liturgy and what is not included in our liturgy forms us as we come together as the body of Christ. Let me give some examples of differing liturgies from other places I've been. We visited a church in South Dakota some years ago, probably quite some years ago now, um, where the congregation stood up and remained standing whenever Scripture was read. Why would they do that? I don't believe it's commanded anywhere in the Bible to stand up during the reading of the Word. No, it was the congregation's choice to say with an action of their physical bodies that they respect those words that God's given us and preserved for us from generation to generation. They were using their bodies to reinforce a truth to their minds and hearts. Perhaps a less helpful liturgy took place. Uh, this was from last February. My wife and my brother-in-law, Adam, and I traveled to Missouri for their Aunt Marty's funeral in February. And on our way back, 
we worshiped at a church in West Central Missouri. And one of the striking differences between here and there is when it was time for the senior pastor to come out and begin his part in the service, some grand triumphant music began to play, like theme music. And then the senior pastor came out a door from the back of the stage area while the triumphant music is playing, and the entire congregation got to their feet and began applauding. It was something to see. Now, I want to be clear. I am glad when any congregation loves and supports its pastors, and we should be encouraging and praying for and loving Nathan and Neil in whatever ways we can. But it is not good for the heart of any man to take the stage week after week to explosive theme music and a standing ovation. The temptation to believe that it's all about you and barely about Jesus is just too strong. And I guarantee you that over time, this human exalting practice will bear strange fruit. Now, I do want to be honest with you. After the clapping died down, he preached a brief but biblical sermon, the main point of which I still remember six months later. But liturgies take place outside the church as well. As our culture gets further and further from a lived-out Christian worldview, it puts forth rival liturgies, public spaces and practices that tell a different story than the Christian story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. James K.A. Smith, again, writes in his fascinating and thought-provoking book, you are what you love, about the experience of going to shop at the mall. Listen to his description of what it's like to spend time at a shopping mall. And I'm, I'm excerpting this, so I hope it's still smooth and makes sense, but the, I tried reading the whole thing, uh, and it was too long for our context here. And it turns out that I need stronger glasses if I'm going to make it through this part. All right, here we go. So, settle in, listen to what he says. One of my quiet moments of parental success was the day our oldest son, then a young teenager, asked me, Dad, can you drive me to the temple? I knew what he meant immediately. We had recently had a discussion in which I tried to impress upon him that the local mall is actually one of the most religious sites in town, but not because it is preaching a message or touting a doctrine. No one meets you at the door of the mall and gives you their statement of faith that lists the 16 things the mall believes. The mall doesn't believe anything, and it isn't interested in engaging your intellect. Its targets are lower. But don't think that means the mall is a neutral space. And don't think that means the mall isn't religious. The mall is a religious site, not because it is theological, but because it is liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or messages, but in its rituals. The mall doesn't care what you think, but it is very interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's after your heart. So, he goes to the mall. We arrive at one of the several grandiose entrances to the building. 
channeling us through a colonnade of chromed arches to towering glass face with doors lining its base. As we enter the space, we are ushered into a narthex of sorts intended for receiving, orienting, and channeling new seekers, as well as providing a bit of decompression space for the regular faithful to enter into the spirit of the space. For the seeker, there is a large map, a kind of worship aid, to help orient the novice to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth. The design of the interior is one of vertical or transcendent openness that at the same time shuts off the clamor and distractions of the horizontal mundane world. The architectural mode of enclosure and enfolding suggests sanctuary, retreat, and escape. The pilgrim is also invited to escape from the mundane ticking of clock time to inhabit a space governed by a different time, even a kind of timelessness. And so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. As we wander the labyrinth in contemplation, preparing to enter one of the chapels, we'll be struck by the rich iconography that lines the walls and interior spaces, unlike the, flattering depict the flattened depictions of saints that one might find in stained glass windows. Here one finds an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires our desires to be imitators of these examples. These statues and icons, he's talking about mannequins here, right? These mannequins embody for us concrete images of the good life. They are the ideals of perfection to which we will learn to aspire. This temple like countless others now emerging around the world, offers a rich, embodied visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires. It compels us to come, not through dire moralisms, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in the envisioned good life. We are thereby invited Invited to enter into the act of worship more properly. Invited to taste and see. We are greeted by a welcoming acolyte who offers to shepherd us through the experience, but also has the wisdom to allow us to explore on our own terms if we so choose. In either case, after time spent focusing on and searching in what the faithful call the racks, with our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar that is the consummation of worship. While acolytes and other worship assistants have helped us navigate our experience, behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction. And this is a religion of transaction, of exchange and communion. When invited to worship here, we are not only invited to give we are invited to take. We don't leave this transformative experience with just good feeling or pious generalities, but rather with something concrete and tangible, with newly minted relics, as it were, which are themselves the means to the good life embodied in the icons who invited us into this participatory moment in the first place. And so we make our sacrifice, leave our donation, but get in return something with solidity, that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints in the season. 
released by the priest with a benediction, we make our way out of the chapel in a kind of denouement, not necessarily with the intention of leaving, our awareness of time has already been muted, but rather to continue contemplation and be invited into another chapel. Who could resist the tangible realities of the good life so abundantly and invitingly offered? Now, in case you are wondering, you don't have to agree with what I just read. It's not scripture. But I bring it up as an idea of what happens in culture and what happens in our lives when we encounter other rituals, other liturgies. Does this mean you can't have a job at the mall or shop at the mall? No, not at all. But it does mean that you need to be alert for rival liturgies that are telling your heart a different story than what's important, what's meaningful, and what will ultimately bring satisfaction. Our private liturgies are important too. What do I mean by this? Humans are creatures of habit. And our habits are the things that exert such a strong pull on us to the point of being almost unconscious. That means that we have to cultivate good habits in order to support our love and obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm talking about things way beyond brush your teeth regularly or don't stay up too late at night. I'm talking about habits, at-home liturgies that cultivate spiritual growth. And I'm ashamed to tell you of the little progress that we made in this area in our home compared to the homes that raised us. But I will share one success. When our kids were very small, we started saying a Bible verse together before each meal. Within a week or so of repetition, the kids had memorized the verse pretty much effortlessly, and then we could add another verse to the rotation. And so scripture memory became a not-too-difficult activity, and the verses that we chose were foundational stuff that every believer would benefit from having in their hearts and minds. And so, so I ask you to think about what are the practices that you are engaged in in your home, and how do they support spiritual formation? At least one of our boys has told me that he plans to continue this practice in his home when he has the spiritual leadership of his family. And number four, formation takes place through the media that we choose to consume. Formation takes place through the media that we choose to consume. I want to preface this one by saying that a lot of us grew up in the 1980s and 1990s, and we heard way too many sermons about what was okay to watch and what was not okay to watch. And the problem with that, of course, is that what we watch or listen to, music, movies, TV shows, podcasts, songs, often affect one person differently than another person. And even worse, the idea of okay in a lot of those sermons meant that it didn't have much for nudity and it didn't have much for foul language. But I'd like to put forth that there's a lot more to evaluate in what we watch than language and sensuality. 
To give you a sense of what I mean, I'd like to use the examples from three different TV series. My first example is a series called Criminal Minds. Anybody ever watch Criminal Minds? Oh, one, one brave person who's, okay, good. I watch TV, I'm sorry. It was a hit police procedural drama from 2005 to 2020, and it did very well for CBS. The gist of the series is that members of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, the BAU, are bringing perpetrators of seriously messed up crimes to justice. Okay? And this is largely in line with the story that Scripture presents. The good guys get the bad guys, good is rewarded, and evil is punished. So far, so good. But as we continue watching episode after episode, I notice something else. After you developed a relationship with the characters, the writers of the show used the characters to get you to feel a certain way about whatever social issue was on their minds. For example, in one episode, a young man in his 20s was one of the main subjects of the story. They presented his struggle with homosexuality and pretty directly blamed it on his father. The father, a sturdy man with military bearing, was a Bible-believing Christian who told us that the meaning and the focus of his life was to please the Lord. And all of the main characters, who by this time you've grown to love, communicate in their own ways that the young man's choices are just fine and that the biblical Christian father is the source of the problem. Now, if you're anything like me, this sets up a conflict in your heart. You know what Romans 1 says about the practice of homosexuality, and you really like these characters, and you want them to be right. You want to agree with them. The show is doing its best to chip away at your biblical worldview. Example two is a little different. We had just finished watching a series called Alone, which is absolutely fascinating, but we were out of episodes. And wanting to find something new, a family member recommended to me, why don't we try watching Survivor? So we queued up the new season of Survivor, took a look. Survivor and Alone are very different. While alone extolled the virtues of preparation, hard work, and perseverance, Survivor instead appealed to the basest part of human nature in multiple ways. Within 20 minutes of watching the show, I felt my inner relationship with Christ being damaged, and we turned it off. Basically, it fed my flesh, and it was not a helpful show for me to be watching. I'll finish with example three. I'm thinking of the political thriller Designated Survivor, which ran from 2016 to 2019, and starred Kiefer Sutherland. Those of you who are old enough will remember Kiefer Sutherland in numerous other shows and movies. <clears throat> the show's premise is based on a routine practice of the routine of... <laughs> routine practice of the United States government, which is whenever the whole House and the whole Senate and the executive branch get together, they name somebody called the designated survivor. In other words, that person has to be off-site and watch the thing remotely so that if there's a bombing or an attack 
on the Capitol and everybody else dies, then that person is still alive and can carry on the government. It's a member of the president's cabinet. So, um, <clears throat> in this show, uh, the, the designated survivor um, is Tom Kirkman, the HUD secretary. Now, if you know anything about U.S. government, the HUD secretary is not a hugely powerful cabinet post, right? So they name him designated survivor, and as the show's premise would have it, there is a capital bombing, and everybody gets blown to smithereens, and Tom Kirkman is the only one who survives. President Tom Kirkman faces the impossible challenge of rebuilding the government from the ground up and finding those responsible for the bombing and bringing them to justice. In situation after agonizing situation, Kirkman does the right thing instead of the easy or expedient thing. And there's a lot to celebrate here. In a particularly powerful part of the narrative, FBI agent Hannah Wells, played by Maggie Q, makes some connections between events and realizes that the newly appointed vice president is part of the conspiracy that did the bombing and that he's about to kill the president. In a series of consecutive episodes, she doggedly pursues what she knows to be the truth in the face of danger, intimidation, lack of respect from superiors and colleagues, and saves the president's life. No series is perfect, but there's a fair amount in this one that lines up with the story that God is telling in the scriptures. And each of the series that I mentioned over time would have a different impact in the formation of your heart. Well, in sum, the righteousness that God desires for us doesn't appear fully formed the moment that we yield ourselves to Christ. In fact, when Jesus was discussing in John chapter 3, he said, you must be born again. It begins as spiritual birth not as spiritual maturity. And just like a physical body grows and becomes strong through physical training, our hearts grow in righteousness through spiritual training. So we've got to be in the Word. We've got to be living lives saturated with prayer. We've got to take stock of our public and private liturgies. And we've got to consider what other voices and belief systems are shaping our thoughts, and our attitudes on a day-to-day -day basis, especially when we might be least aware of it. And as we do these things, God will use them to create in us the clean hearts and the right spirits that the psalmist wrote about. Let's pray together and we'll invite the worship team back up. Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity to consider some thoughts from your word this morning, to, to ask ourselves the question, how can we be transformed? How can we grow in loving you and desiring the righteousness that you want us to desire? So God, we ask that you would use our time together at Berean Community Church week after week to be formative in our lives. Pray for our leaders that they would critically evaluate who we are and what we do and think about how we can be telling your story week after week 
in the context of this body. And God, we ask that the transformation that happens here would not stay here, but that it would spill out into our homes, into our relationships with others, and that the righteousness of Christ would be seen in our hearts and in our lives. And God, we know it's not something we can do on our own. We can't will ourselves to become righteous, but we can ask you to form that in us. So do that today, Lord God. And again, thanks for all that you have given and all that you've done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.